All right, last week we talked primarily about Greek history and the Greek culture and how the various Greek myths of the specific cities and of the nation of Greece altogether contribute to Greek identity. Um, this week we're turning our attention to the other cultures we've been bumping into um, throughout this class, specifically the Romans first, that we'll talk about the Romans today, um, and then the Israelites in our next session. We'll talk about the whole impact of the Bible, the significance of the Exodus to the Jewish culture, and how that sort of expands into Christianity and spins out into this huge religion that we're dealing with today. Um, so first off, before we get started on the Romans, I want to stress that like in our next lecture, we're going to be pretty freeform about the discussion of Judaism and Christianity. Um, and I expect roughly the same from our class time, from any you know discussions we have online, um, anything of that nature. Uh, this is my opportunity to set the record straight about Christianity. And every semester I try to like set aside an entire day where we can basically just do that. Set the record straight about how Christianity works, um, both in the ancient setting and today. Because um, I know that there's a lot of bad information out there and the internet and contemporary American culture is doing no favors to the way that Christianity is presented and understood. Um, so if you have questions about any of that stuff, by all means, like, feel free to talk to me about it. Um, I'm sure I'll emphasize that in the next lecture as well. Um, but as you are doing your reading, as you are doing your preparations, by all means, feel free to think up questions you want to ask. Um, but like I said, we'll talk about that more in the next lecture. For now, let's talk about the Romans. Um, so far, we've been bumping into them periodically throughout this class, like when we read Ovid's Metamorphoses, Ovid is a Roman writer. Um, every time that we sit down to read Apollodorus, he is writing while uh, under the Roman Empire rather than under like the Greek worldview. Um, so the Romans have been sort of around the periphery of our class, but now I kind of want to make them front and center because they really are a huge influence on how these myths get transmitted to us as well as being having their own really important mythic tradition in their own right. Um, so once again, I have a PowerPoint presentation set up. It should be on the Canvas page right around where you found this lecture. Um, so open that up to the first slide, the Greco-Roman timeline, and let's start there. Um, the first thing I want to stress is while like world history tends to see Greece and Rome as two moments in the grand span of this whole world history thing, um, really it was a lot more concurrent than anyone tends to give them credit for. Um, so if you look at our little timeline here, you'll notice that um, while we have like the first major events um, in Greek history listed around 800 BCE and thereabouts, like this is the time that Hesiod and Homer is, is writing, this is our archaic period that we talked about last week. Um, you'll notice that there are notes for the first Greek city-states emerging, the Olympic Games first being held, um, the Greeks inventing their own alphabetic writing, all great. Um, but notice that around 600, like 200 years after these really ancient moments in Greek history, we see seven hill towns merge to form Rome, and 100 years after that, the Romans set up their republic. Um, in short, like all this time that we've been talking about the Greeks, the, the sort of classical moment in Greek history, and then Hellenism under Alexander the Great and Philip of Macedon, the Romans have not been idle. 
Um, they have been sort of like building their republic and building their empire little by little at this point. Um, although they're not going to really vault onto the scene and become the major world power until after Hellenism. Um, but the important thing that I want to stress is this moment, like further down the timeline, you can see the big, um, the big fights of the arc of the classical Greek period, the Athenians defeating the Persians at Marathon in 490, um, Pericles' Golden Age and like the 450 in there about, and then the Peloponnesian War from 430 to 400. These are the big things that we were talking about with the classical Greek history. Um, after this is when Alexander the Great is sweeping through all of the known world and like conquering it for his own purposes. Um, but then notice that in 215 to 146 BCE, Rome conquers Greece. And this is the moment that I want to really drive home in this class. Um, Rome did not build their own empire. Rome very much inherited a lot of it from the Greeks. Like, they definitely expanded to different places than the Greeks. That's actually the dominant characteristic of the Roman Empire. Um, if you skip down a few slides, you can see the Roman Empire and the fact that, like, it includes a lot of Alexander's conquered territory from Hellenism. But it also includes all of Western Europe. And basically, rather than being focused on Persia and everything east of Greece, it's actually focused much more on everything around the Mediterranean Sea. Um, that's the extent of the Roman reach and the extent of Roman rule. Um, now, let's sort of make clear exactly what we're dealing with here. Um, the Romans had a very different idea of who they were than the Greeks did. Like, that's what I wanted to sort of draw out of the texts that I chose, and also what is sort of really emphasized by their major myths. Um, the Greeks had a very different understanding of who they were than the Romans did. And it's the myths that sort of set them apart. So, like, the Greeks see themselves as liberators. Um, you've got Theseus beating back the Minoans, defeating the Minotaur, and setting Athens free from the cruel rule of King Minos. Um, you have the voyage of all of the united peoples of Greece to Troy to conquer it and, you know, take back what is rightfully theirs. You have the story of, you know, the 300 and the battle where the Greeks all unite against the Persians, these slaving conquerors, as Herodotus puts it. Um, in, the important thing to keep in mind is that the Greeks see themselves as being individual individualistic even when you are Spartans. Um, even if you live in Spartan society, you see yourself as having the right to make your government however you want to make it. If you want to make it a giant eugenic dictatorial uh, military state, that's your prerogative. You want it to be an individualistic democracy like Athens, that's your prerogative. Um, when Alexander is bringing Greek values to the rest of the known world, yes, he's absolutely bringing the Iliad and the Odyssey and making the foundation of Greek culture the foundation of all Western culture. Um, but at the same time, he's also bringing these Greek values, this Greek notion of justice, these Greek philosophical ideas of liberation and freedom sort of throughout the Western world. Um, this self-identity, which is, like I said, misplaced. Like, the Greeks were terrible slavers, and they were absolutely, like, just pirates in every sense of the word, but they, you know, were pirates with a good spin. Um, as much as this is a lie, this is how they perceive themselves. The Romans, on the other hand, do not see themselves that way at all. 
Um, so you'll notice that in the myths that we read for today, the emphasis that you're consistently going to run across is Romans are triumphant. They are militaristic. They are warriors, first and foremost. They have founded their city through great upheaval and strife and difficulty, and they will beat back anyone who fights against them, conquer them, and sort of assimilate them into their perfect society. Um, this is the world that the Romans perceive. And it sort of makes sense when you look at the map of what the Roman Empire became, that where Greece is sort of starting from Greece and then expanding outwards into, you know, the Persian Empire, the Romans always have Rome at the center of the world. Um, like, Rome is just the branching out point for all of their conquests. Um, they move as far to the west as they do to the east, as far to the south as they do to the north. Um, and while, you know, this isn't exactly true, eventually the, the empire is going to become a little, like, weighted on the eastern side, that's exactly when Rome is going to split. Um, so Romans see themselves as conquerors. Um, and when they conquer Greece, the real thing to keep in mind for this class is that the Romans suffered, like, kind of a huge identity crisis. Um, as a result. Like, the Romans are really indebted to the Greeks on, in a lot of ways. Their culture is sort of dependent on the foundation that the Greek culture has already laid down. Um, and you'll notice that most of the Roman gods, the Roman pantheon, the Roman myths that we run into are going to basically just be like Greek myths with a new coat of paint. Um, and in fact, it's n like... The, the idea that, you know, each of the Greek gods has their Roman name basically just indicates what is true about the Roman, like, mythological worldview, namely that they just take whatever gods they find as they are conquering territory, and that includes the Greek pantheon. Um, now, the actual Roman pantheon, like the original Roman pantheon, before they conquered the Greeks, was also indebted to the Greeks. Um, you'll notice that the Romans trace their lineage to Aeneas, one of our Trojan heroes. Um, he is the only one of Priam's sons to survive the sacking of Greece, largely because he was, you know, calling for surrender, like giving up Helen and not fighting the Greeks for as long as they did, as Livy points out here. Um, but also notice that, like, this is the same universe that Aeneas is coming from. They have the same gods. Um, when Aeneas brings Trojan culture to Italy and sort of like makes friends with the Latins and forms the society that will become Rome, um, they very much import the Greek pantheon in, a, in the process. Um, now they all have different names. So Zeus is Jupiter now, uh, Hera is Juno, Artemis is Diana, Apollo remains Apollo, um, Hermes becomes Mercury, Hades becomes Pluto, basically like any of the planets that we have is usually the Roman name for one of the major Greek gods. Um, but importantly, the Romans also have their own gods, which the Latins sort of indigenously have been worshipping for a while, bef like, without any Greek influence. Um, so the Roman pantheon is very much just this giant, like, cobbled-together mess of a bunch of different gods and traditions, um, some of which just don't even seem to make sense together. And rather than sort of, like, streamlining it, um, the Romans just consistently add more and more and more tradition and ritual to their like imperial religion. 
Um, but we're already getting ahead of ourselves here. Um, the point that I want to stress for our purposes is that while their culture is dependent on the Greeks, the Romans also have kind of a big deal inferiority complex with the Greeks. Um, like, they know that they inherited much of their empire. They know that they inherited much of their mythology. They know they inherited many of their heroes, and they know that they inherited many of their myths from the Greeks, and they're really pissed about it. Um, like, seething, angry pissed. Um, so conquering Greece is one way to make themselves feel better, but it doesn't change the fact that they are still dependent on Greek culture. Like, as much as the Roman Empire is, you know, this hugely successful, really powerful empire that's going to span centuries, way more than Hellenism ever did, um, the weird thing is they're going to be speaking Greek the whole time. Um, and this makes the Romans really uncomfortable. Like, remember, Alexander the Great brought Greek, the language, as well as the myths and the culture, to the entire ancient world at this point. So if you are trading with anyone, if you were, like crossing over you know city lines from place to place to conduct your business the the language you're going to speak is greek because everybody speaks it um and the romans as much as you know they are like more powerful than the greeks and they conquer the greeks they never supplant that cultural power so while the people in rome will speak latin and most of the roman sort of bureaucracy is going to try and speak latin and like keep it to latin as much as they possibly can the average people in the street are going to keep speaking greek um, they're going to keep conducting their business in greek they're going to keep trading in greek you can go anywhere in the roman empire and speak greek and you will be understood and people will deal with you and in fact if you try and speak latin chances are it's going to go worse for you um, and the romans know this and they're grumpy about it likewise alexander the great brought all the myths to all of the ancient world the myth of the Iliad and the Odyssey, the Greek myths that we've been studying in this class, and everybody knows these myths. And the Romans also know these myths. They also believe these myths. They also follow these myths. They also practice these rituals. Like, they're still worshipping at Eleusis, and they're still worshipping at various important Greek sites, the places that are sacred to the same gods that they hold dear. But those sites are in Greece, which makes everyone really uncomfortable, because, you know, they're the Romans. They're supposed to have their own gods and their, their own traditions. Um, and as a result, like, especially as Rome sort of picks up speed and transitions from their republic structure to the empire, um, the Romans are going to increasingly feel that cultural divide, that inferiority complex, and they're going to try to make up for it. The primary Roman writers we're going to be reading in here fall into sort of two categories, much like the Greeks do. Um, on the one hand, we have our heavy-duty historians like Livy and Plutarch, who are trying to, you know, recreate the history of Rome with as little supernatural or mythic-like uh, interaction as possible. Um, but on the other hand, we're also going to run into Roman mythmakers in their own right, guys like Virgil and Ovid, who are basically just trying to create a Roman culture to compete with the Greeks. Um, this is nowhere more obvious than in Virgil. Um, so, like, for today we read a decent chunk of, um, of Ovid's Metamorphoses, which in turn pull strongly um, from the tradition of Aeneas in Virgil, uh, Virgil's Aeneid. Um, and you'll notice that Ovid repeatedly emphasizes how much more awesome Aeneas is than Ulysses or Odysseus. Um, Virgil does the same thing. In the Aeneid, basically what Virgil is doing is he's cribbing the Iliad and then cribbing the Odyssey 
and then unapologetically making Aeneas way more cool than both Achilles and Odysseus. Um, so in Ovid's talk, d uh, discussion of Aeneas's adventures, you'll notice that like Ulysses, who struggled with Scylla and Charybdis and lost six of his crewmen to Scylla before the entire ship is wiped out, as we talked about last week with uh, the story of the Odyssey, here Aeneas has no problem. Like Scylla's not even an issue. He just sails right by. Nobody gets hurt. Um, like this is an em this is emphasized by Ovid that Aeneas is really superior to Odysseus. Aeneas is the way better hero and absolutely the better progenitor, um, which you'll remember Aeneas is very much like integral to the founding of Rome. Aeneas is the progenitor of the Roman people. Um, so likewise in Virgil, um, in the Aeneid, he is very much stressing that like his epic is way better than anything that Homer ever wrote. Uh, like it's got all the best parts of the Iliad and all the best parts of the Odyssey, but Aeneas is way cooler than both of them. And therefore why read that Homeric crap when you could read Virgil's definitive epic story of Aeneas being the most awesome hero who ever lived. Um, again, this is kind of propaganda in its own right. Um, the Romans wouldn't have seen it that way because, you know, for them, there is no such thing as propaganda. Like, these are true myths. They are actually what happened. Um, but notice that the emphasis is very much on how much more awesome the Romans are than the Greeks. Like, you can say the exact same thing in early fascist literature, like the Germans and the Italians in the 1940s talking about how crappy the French and the British were and downplaying all of their artistic accomplishments. Um, anytime you have this, like, heavy-duty militaristic, like power as identity society you will see them dumping on the accomplishments of the people they are in fact indebted to um so here you can see like the romans absolutely are self-conscious about the fact that so much of their culture comes from the greeks and they're deliberately trying to like rewrite history to make it more roman to put them at the top of the totem pole so to speak um, but the primary time that this happens is actually considerably after the conquest of Greece, um, which brings us to our next slide, the ancient Roman timeline. Um, now this one is really simple, like really straightforward and very broad strokes, but I think it's actually really instructive um, because at this point, when you know virtually nothing about the Roman Empire, you kind of need the broad strokes before we can get into the fiddly details. Um, so the main thing to keep in mind about the Romans is that there are basically like three major periods in Roman history, or at least Roman proper. We'll, we'll get into how this falls apart a bit. Um, you have the Archaic Rome, the Rome under the kings, which is indicated as like stretching back beyond 1000 BCE up to about 500 BCE. Again, you'll remember from the earlier timeline that 506 is when we usually assume the Republic is formed. Um, we don't know much about Archaic Rome, just like we don't know a whole heck of a lot about Archaic Greece. There's not a whole lot of records there, and most of the stuff that we get are, you know, myths or oral traditions passed down generation to generation. Um, you'll notice that this Archaic period is what we're reading about in Livy um, for today. This is the whole transition from Aeneas initially, like, setting sail from Troy, landing around Latinus, uh, basically making a diplomatic agreement with Latinus, marrying his daughter, 
and ultimately founding the area that will one day be Rome. Um, all of the kings that are noted in Livy's description, all of those like this guy gave birth to this guy, gave birth to this guy, gave birth to this guy, and so on and so forth, all the way down to Romulus and Remus, that's all archaic Rome, king's Rome, Rome as kingdom. Um, so at this point, Rome is a thing, but Rome is sort of just its own sort of city-state, doing its own thing, not bothering anyone, probably getting involved in the occasional Greek dispute. Um, like, I imagine that, this, that the Greeks are aware of the budding Romans, but they are just one more, like, kingdom in a whole group of them. Probably not that big a deal. Um, and it, they're not going to start rapidly expanding until their government starts to shift as well. Which, of course, brings us to the Republic. Um, this is the other major feature of Roman society. The Republic is perceived by the Romans to be sort of the pinnacle of Roman society. Um, when, in fact, most of the like height of Roman power is going to take place later, under the emperors. Uh, and you'll notice that um, Crash Course, John Green, emphasizes this in his writing. He's like, okay, so seriously, the line between Rome as Empire and Rome as Republic is very fuzzy at best. It's not clear exactly when Rome went from being, you know, Republican ruled to Rome having powerful dictators, powerful generals who were basically calling the shots and running the show. Um, but for our purposes, understanding these cultures through their own myths, i.e. understanding the way that they perceive themselves and not really like how the power structures actually worked, um, we should definitely understand that the Romans see the Republic as being the ideal form of their government. Um, when they were a Republic, that was when they were at their best, their most virtuous. Um, you'll notice that when Livy starts his, his writings on uh, Ab Urbe Condita, the passage that we read for the, for the class, he actually like stresses that you know he is not living at the best moment in Roman history, even though like from the point of view of history, he totally is. Um, so if you look on page 376, um, he writes in that second paragraphs, such traditions as belong to the time before the city was founded or rather was presently to be founded and are rather adorned with poetic legends than based upon trustworthy historical proofs, I propose neither to affirm nor to refute. In short, Livy wants to stress that he is writing history, not mythology. He wants to sort of get all of the supernatural elements out of his story. Um, so he's going to absolutely turn like a skeptical eye towards stories like Romulus and Remus being raised by wolves, or Mars, in fact, being their father, or Aeneas like having Aphrodite as, as his mother, not something he wants to deal with. It is the privilege of antiquity to mingle divine things with human, and so to add dignity to the beginnings of cities. And if any people ought to be allowed to consecrate their origins and refer them to a divine source, so great is the military glory of the Roman people that when they profess that their father and the father of their founder was none other than Mars, the nations of the earth may well submit to this also with as good a grace as they submit to Rome's dominion. But to such legends as these, however they shall be regarded and judged, I shall for my own part attach no great importance. Here are the questions to which I would have every reader give his close attention. What life and morals were like? Through what men and by what policies, in peace and in war, empire was established and enlarged? Then let him note how, with the gradual relaxation of discipline, morals first gave way, as it were, then sank lower and lower, and finally began the downward plunge which has brought us to the present time, when we can endure neither our vices nor their cure. 
What chiefly makes the study of history wholesome and profitable is this, that you behold the lessons of every kind of experience set forth as on a conspicuous monument. From these you may choose for yourself and for your own state what to imitate. From these mark for avoidance what is shameful in the conception and shameful in the result. Notice that Livy is explicitly setting out at the very beginning of his text that shit is bad now. Um, like he's writing in just around the same time as Augustus is ruling the the uh, the empire um, somewhere between 27 BCE and 14 CE in all likelihood. Um, so like right around zero AD for lack of a better term. Um, he is talking at this moment and saying things are bad now and what we should be looking back to the the time of the republic is when rome was at its best when the roman citizenry were at their most virtuous when everyone behaved civilly and appropriately and we should be taking that as our model going forward rather than continuing to indulge in these vices See, the Romans perceived themselves as being very much like the Spartans in a lot of ways. Not as rigorously militaristic as the Spartans by a long shot. They definitely don't have that eugenic, like, killing off weak babies thing going on. Um, but at the same time, they see warfare as the hallmark of their culture. Um, the ideal Roman citizen is one who practices a great deal of self-restraint, who trains very deliberately in the arts of war, who does not indulge in vices like wealth or luxury. Um, they are people who live simply, who behave straightforwardly, and who therefore get stuff done. Um, this is what everyone wants to be. Now, John Green emphasized the, the model of Cincinnatus, the Roman sort of citizen who took control of the empire when it was necessary and then laid down control of the empire when it was no longer necessary, preferring instead to retire to his farm peacefully. Um, this is the model that all Roman citizens should have taken. What does your country need of you? Are you willing to rise to that occasion? Are you willing to put aside your life and well-being for its sake? And then when your job is done, are you willing to go back to your home and peacefully live out your days? This is what the Romans aspire to. And over and over and over and over again, in both their myths and their other writings, because the Romans were prolific and really impressive essayists at the end of the day, they will emphasize these virtues. Um, these virtues of asceticism, stoicism, and simplicity. Um, in fact, this is the moment in time when Stoicism is very much founded as a philosophical school. Um, like after Plato and Aristotle and Hellenism, the whole philosophy of Greece sort of fractured into multiple directions. Um, one of the key ones, especially like prominent in Roman society, was Stoicism. This idea that one needs to sub or like subordinate the passions to the reason, as Plato suggested, and therefore govern yourself with sort of an iron fist. Refuse to succumb to pleasure or passion or um, wealth or intemperance of any kind of any variety. Um, so at this moment that Livy is writing, he sees the transition occurring. He sees the old days of Rome, the days of the Republic, 500 BCE all the way to say 200 BCE, as being a time populated by Roman citizens of terrible virtue. People who were willing to give their lives, to, to like suffer and die at the hands of enemies in order to save and preserve the Roman Republic. People who, you know, practiced virtue, who you know, stood up and said what they believed in, who 
did the right thing over and over and over again. Um, and there was a certain flexibility to the Roman Republic that allowed for both like popular rule, but also um, great men to rise up and lead the nation when it was necessary. So during the Roman Republic, yes, there is a lot of infighting and nobody should like gloss over that. Um, but the basic structure that you're dealing with is you have the Roman Senate, like that incredibly potent and very important institution which is the basis of basically all of our contemporary legislative institutions as well um, and the senate was unlike the greek demos populated entirely by just representatives of the major roman like divisions um, these were all nobles um, they were nobles who represented not just their house but the area around their house Unlike your typical Greek estate, where you've got like your lord ruling over his entire family, as well as all the servants, as well as all the laborers on the estate, um, in Rome, it's sort of like the uh, senator would represent not just his household, but the city block around it, basically. Um, everybody who worked there, everybody who, you know, had a stall there, the merchants and the middle class, as well as the low class workers. Since they're not all owned by the senator, although he probably has a lot of influence over them anyway, it's a little different from the Greek society. Um, but the idea is that not the senator does not just represent his family and his interests. He is not a voting member because he is a citizen. Instead, he represents the interests of all of the citizens in the area that he represents. Again, he is a representative. This is a republic. Um, it is a representative form of government. Um, so the senators do take the popular interests in mind, but overwhelmingly they tend to emphasize and sort of represent the ideas of the nobility, um, themselves well respected in Roman society. Like there was a very clear class distinction in Roman society, the way that you don't have it in Athens. Like nobody really gives a crap that the Athenian nobles are the only people voting in the demos in ancient Athens. This is a perfectly functional way of working as far as, you know, the lower classes are concerned, at least so far as the historical record would suggest. Um, but in Roman society, it was a little bit different. Um, because it was a, like, capital C city, a real urban environment and not just a collection of estates sort of, like, surrounding a central agora or marketplace, um, because there were, like, people in the lower classes who did not, like, just have farms and who talked to each other and had their own interests, um, frequently they perceived the rich senators and the nobility as being opposed to their interests, as being untrustworthy in some way. Um, but again, those senators were well cultivated. They were educated men. They did not go to war, although they were ready for it when it came to their doorstep. Um, they were trained. They were rigorously disciplined. This was the ideal that Livy is pointing to, wishing that they could get back to. Uh, but at the same time, among these nobles and among these senators, there are often these individuals who rise to other positions within the empire. Um, the consuls or other, like, um, other major figures within the Roman uh, structure, which frequently changes. That's why I'm like not 100% familiar. It's not 100% consistent. Um, these people frequently rose to prominence through popular appeal, either because they won military victories or because they did something good for like the people at large, because they lowered taxes or because they stood up against the Senate. Um, for various reasons, the Senate is frequently opposed to these sort of 
nigh dictatorial figures, the triunes and the uh, consuls. Um, and as a result, like even though frequently they're, you know, the triunes and the consuls are coming from the Senate population, um, there's, this, there's animosity there. But it also is really useful. Like if Rome is attacked, having the Senate as the primary legislative body isn't helpful. They have to like organize and committee their way into mounting a defense or mounting a counterattack. By contrast, if you have like a triune who is working basically as a super general governing the entire Roman legion, they, that's way more effective for repelling invasion or conducting invasion on their own. So as a result, these generals are becoming more and more prominent over the course of Roman Republican history, to the point that when we get to the Roman Civil Wars, which spread for about like 100 years after um, 200 BCE, and that doesn't just include Julius Caesar, but quite a few other sort of like prefiguring him as well. Um, when you get to that point, you see this very clear divide between the Roman Senate, who now seems to represent only the interests of the wealthy, and the Roman people, who are frequently represented by one of these important generals, who has won popular appeal for one reason or another. So obviously this really comes to a head with Julius Caesar. Um, Caesar was extremely popular with his military, for one thing, they were very loyal to him and not to the Senate, not to the Republicans, not to the people who didn't put their lives on the line every day in Rome's various battles um, in the field. But also, Caesar was really popular with the common people, the people who he had saved money, who he had protected on multiple occasions, whose interests he spoke up for. So eventually the people gave authority to Caesar. Um, like the Senate, tr even after they kill him, the people are not satisfied with this. They see the senators as the enemy and not Caesar as some tyrant come to usurp power, even though that's what he effectively is when he crosses the Rubicon with his army. Um, the period that follows is a period of serious unrest. Like John Green sort of glosses over a lot of it. Um, but for a while, Roman authority is really uncertain. The Senate has lost a lot of clout because the people are like running them out of town at this point. Um, they're going into the field and basically supporting one of the triumvirate as you know the next dictator to follow Caesar, um, i.e. either Octavian or Caesar, what, the guy who will become Caesar Augustus or Mark Antony. Um, and eventually this consolidates under Augustus as the new Rome, the imperial Rome, the Rome of the emperor, rather than the Rome where the Republic has the final say. The Senate will, will continue to operate, but it will basically just operate as like an arm of the emperor. They no longer have any real political power, and any time that they try and seize it, they're going to be very unsuccessful. Um, at this point, Rome's power is located in the empire, the emperor, as well as the military, which the emperor is very much the head of. Um, and while this will have varied successes over time, as we'll see, um, this is where it's going to be. And a lot of people during this period, especially in the early stages, like the first hundred years of imperial rule between, say, 50 BCE and 50 AD, um, you're going to see a lot of writers sort of hearkening back to the Roman Republic, saying, man, I wish it was like the old days, before we had all this wealth, before all the power was concentrated in one man, back when Roman, Rome was Rome, back when the Senate was the ruling body and not these upstart emperors. Um, 
that's where Virgil is going to go. That's where Ovid is going to go. That's what Livy emphasizes here. Um, Roman imperial rule is in many cases well regarded. Like you'll see different, uh, different writers sort of like stressing that this is actually a good thing for Rome, but you're also going to see a lot of pushback. Um, you're going to see Marcus Aurelius, like even though he is an emperor, sort of trying to give more power to the Senate. You're going to see Livy arguing that r the Romans have lost their way. Um, you're going to see even Ovid and Virgil, who are mostly pro-empire, arguing that Roman virtue has in fact decayed. People have gotten fat and callous and lazy in the hundreds of years that Rome has been around. Um, the empire is largely coming about through what they perceive to be popular vice rather than noble virtue. Um, which, again, history can absolutely tear this apart and have a field day with exactly how that works. Um, for our purposes, it might be nice to note that, like, this is why the founders of the Constitution were really resistant to the idea of, like, democratic rule. Um, like I mentioned last week, the, the founders noticed that Athenian democracy, like, failed hard, but the Roman Republic was what they were actually trying to emulate. Um, so as a result, whenever possible, they took the vote out of popular hands because they were worried that, like, the people were going to vote for a tyrant. And then as a result, you'd basically end up with another Roman Empire situation, um, with, like, some Caesar or president taking control of the country, um, regardless of what the legislative body had in place. The, emperor, the founders of the Constitution were basically reading guys like Livy and taking his story about the good old days of Rome at face value. Um, they didn't want a tyrant, so they built a structure where the people only had a limited amount of control over who would get into power. We've changed that in 200 years. Like, now we elect our senators instead of the senators being selected for us. Um, but that's another conversation for another day. Um, but let's turn our attention to this period under the emperors, because as much as like the Roman Republic is the ideal of Roman society, it's honestly not when all of the cool history happens. Um, like, yes, this is when they conquered Greece, and yes, this is a major part of the expansion, and yes, this ushers in Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar and all the big changes, but honestly, the Roman Empire at the height of its power, when it's most influential and when it's doing most of the mythic work that we're going to be interested in this class, is after the emperors are in power. Um, this is when Christianity is going to sort of spring to the fore and grow and develop into its own thing. Um, this is when, like, the height of Greek mythology, as interpreted by the Romans, is going to be taking place. This is when myths are going to transform um, from the sort of, like, old guard of Homer and Hesiod to the new guard of Ovid and Virgil and through that into the new sort of religions like the worship of the unconquered sun um, and, of course, the worship of the Christian and Jewish God as well. Um, so let's look at the Roman imperial timeline because this is, again, like, the really important stuff as far as, like, what you need to know about Rome. So if we divide Rome... the Roman history into the period of like the archaic kingdoms, which nobody knows anything about besides what we get from the myths, the Republic, which is apparently what the Romans think is the best part of their history, even though we historians tend to argue that it's later that is most important. This is the latter part of the Roman Empire, the phase between like 50 BCE when Julius Caesar sort of asserts his power and everything goes to shit. 
um, to about 500 AD when the Roman Empire is very much falling apart and sort of developing into something new and different. Um, and you'll notice on this imperial timeline, like there's a lot of different emperors to sort of keep track of. That's okay. We do not need to pay attention to those. The main ones that you need to keep track of, we will emphasize here. Um, and obviously the first one is Julius Caesar, the guy who kicks all of this off, as well as Augustus Caesar, the guy who formalizes it. Julius Caesar is the one who originally accepted power. He was murdered on the steps of the Senate um, because he was seen as a threat to the Roman Republic. Octavius Caesar, Caesar Augustus, is the one who basically says, no, we're going to have an empire. I am going to be your emperor, and emperors are going to rule the empire from now on. Um, so the first period in Roman imperial history is known as the Julio-Claudian dynasty. It is the succession of emperors who all follow after Caesar Augustus, basically Augustus's kids, um, or at least close relatives. And this is a period of significant stability um, for the Roman Empire as these things tend to go. Augustus, when he comes to power, ushers in an age called the Pax Romanum, um, the Great Peace of Rome. For a hundred years, all the conflicts are far, far away from Rome. Nobody actually, you know, invades Rome or threatens Rome. There are no huge civil wars to divide it, you know, after the one with Julius Caesar. Um, Rome is very much at the height of its power under Augustus and his immediate successors. Um, this is the peak of Roman rule. Um, so, like, this is when the borders are at their farthest, when expansion has gone as far as it is going to go in most cases. Um, this is when Rome, like, this is the height of Roman, Rome's culture. This is when both um, Ovid and Virgil and Livy are all writing. Um, like, most of the great Roman writers come out of this period or, you know, fairly close to it. Um, or, you know, they're great writers in their own right, like Marcus Aurelius down the road. Um, but this is sort of the peak. Now, keep in mind that th these aren't all great emperors, though. Like, Augustus, for sure, yes. Augustus is probably the greatest emperor in Roman history, with the possible exception of Constantine and maybe Marcus Aurelius, depending on, you know, what exactly you value. Um, but he is followed by some pretty dodgy figures. Like, Tiberius is a good guy. Emperor Tiberius has a pretty good reputation. But then you're followed by Caligula, who basically declared himself God and as a consequence, like, went off the deep end and everybody hates him. Um, additionally, while Claudius is, you know, kind of okay, nobody really cares about Claudius that much, Nero is famously hated by the Roman people. Um, this is the guy who it is said that, like, he fiddled while Rome burned. Um, Nero fancied himself an artist, much to the chagrin of all of the actual artists in Roman society, and as a consequence, they frequently took the, every opportunity they could to take pot shots at him. Um, so keep in mind, like, even in this time of great peace, there were some really shitty emperors. Um, this is fairly normal, um, but it's actually only going to get worse from here. Um, so for our purposes, again, make sure you know Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar and what their various roles were. Julius, like, founded the, or received power, but then was immediately killed. Augustus formalized it. Um, be sure to know those. Other than that, don't worry about the others. Like, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about the legacy of Caligula in here as much as we totally could, because dude was really weird. Um, the important thing to keep in mind as far as, like, the legacy of Augustus is that he ushers in worship of the emperor as a part of the Roman religion. 
um, but it doesn't quite take yet. Um, you'll notice, like, in the, in the Crash Course video, it's stressed that Augustus takes on the name the Son of God. Um, this is a name that all of the emperors are going to technically carry, and the implication is that they are a god themselves. Um, so all of the Roman Empire emperors assume the same lineage from, like, Mars and um, Aphrodite that we saw through the myths, through Aeneas, through Romulus and Remus, even though there's no clear evidence that there's, like, an obvious, you know, direct succession um, from generation to generation. They assert that they are, like, part of the Roman king dynasty, um, but they also just basically acknowledge, you know, we're gods, deal with it. And there is introduced into the sort of pagan religion at this time, which again, as I stressed, is sort of like snowballed at this point. Like all the gods that the Romans run across in their various conquests, they adopt and bring home to Rome. Um, they become part of the Pantheon. Augustus basically just becomes another member of the Pantheon, as does all of the emperors that succeed him. Um, but usually this is observed to be after the emperor's death. So, like, Augustus is not God or a god while he is alive, but after his death he becomes a god and can be worshipped as a god. Um, but typically, like, this is kind of minor. Like, not many of the Roman emperors take it terribly seriously during this first hundred years of the Roman emperors um, until Caligula. Caligula is definitely like, no, worship me right now, and it becomes a huge problem and everybody hates him. Um, and this will come back up, like, later on with some of the later emperors, the connections to divinity will be a little bit more obvious and a little bit more stressed, but it, it vacillates. It goes up and it goes down, um, usually relative to whatever the Christians are doing at this point in time, because the Romans especially like to emphasize their emperor when they think that the Christians are being especially obnoxious. Um, so after the Julio-Claudian the Julio dynasty, things kind of fall apart a lot. Um, in AD 60, we have the year of five emperors, um, which is a giant mass, like Nero is assassinated and then like we run through four other emperors in quick succession, all ending very quickly and very violently. Um, this is the first suggestion that the empire thing might not be all it's cracked up to be. Like, never mind the fact that Caligula sucked as an emperor, and Nero probably wasn't that bad, but everybody hated him anyway. Um, at the fact of the matter was, there wasn't a strict rule of succession in place. This was not like, you know, a monarchy where the it goes to the next son or the next daughter or, like, whoever is next in line for the throne. Um, the emperor chose who the next person would be. So if it wasn't exactly clear, or if, you know, somebody was, in a partic was particularly grumpy about the choice, frequently this would end in violence. And as I stress, the emperor was very much emperor because of his control over the military, the army. Um, but the trouble is... Frequently, the army controlled the emperor, not the other way around. Um, especially in the next several hundred years, um, the emperors found basically their own bodyguard, the Praetorian Guard. Like, a branch of the military that is allowed to operate within Roman city bounds, and whose primary job is to protect the emperor at all times. 
trouble is if you're being guarded by dudes with swords all of the time they are absolutely in the best position to assassinate you and take power so frequently emperors will get assassinated by the leader of the praetorian guard only to be supplanted by the leader of their praetorian guard so it's very much a double-edged sword in that sense and as a result, there's this weird political balance that all emperors have to sort of play, where they have to balance the interest of the military against the interest of the Senate, against the interest of the people, because if they piss off any one of them too much, they're likely to get a shiv in the back. Um, and once they're, they've been killed, then who knows who it's going to be who replaces them. Um, so again, five emperors in quick succession because of these sorts of violence, violent overturns and other messes like this. Um... After this, we get several other dynasties, the Flavian dynasty, for example, which is not especially exciting. Um, Vespasian has some major beef with the Christians, but otherwise, like, not a huge deal. Um, the good emperors, those are the ones, this is like the next period of Roman peace as far as it goes, between about, like, 100 AD to, say, 300-ish, or rather, like, 180-ish, um getting ahead of myself um this includes some of the real like some of the best emperors that rome has seen trajan is a really good guy um he manages the empire really nicely um this is when marcus aurelius rules and marcus aurelius is famously like philosophical and like um very responsible with his power tries to reintroduce the the, the rule of the senate um there's a lot of cool stuff going on there um but also, like, this is just temporary. The fact is that Rome is having some major bureaucratic problems at this point in time. The empire has expanded too far. Um, and now between invaders, like, taking over little bits of the empire on the periphery of what Rome rules, um, which forces the military to be dispatched all over the freaking place, as well as civil wars and unrest at home, it's becoming very difficult to keep Rome together. Like, it just, it's too much territory for Rome to administrate from its central location in Italy. Um, and this becomes really obvious after the end of Marcus Aurelius's reign. Um, once again, we get a bunch of crazy successive emperors. Like, something like, in a hundred years, you've got, like, 70 emperors just, like, getting killed regularly. Like, it's just total unrest for a long time um, until Diocletian takes over in right around 300 AD. Um, so there's a great deal of indication that Rome is sort of falling apart at this point um, between the like inconsistency in the imperial succession and like all of the violence that has sort of taken over the role of emperor um between the wars that em that rome is fighting on all of its fronts at all times between like the riots that are taking place and the economic devaluation like there's just a whole bunch of things that are sort of eating away at rome from within including as i mentioned christianity um, in fact, many of these emperors are going to see Christians as the main reason why um, Rome is falling apart at this point. Like, again, when things happen, when, like, bad omens or riots or, you know, 
invasions are successful when you know there's like horrible murders in the imperial succession um frequently people are going to turn to the gods and say why are you letting this happen and you're going to hear like pagans saying it's because we tolerate the christians like we've got all of these traitors in our midst people who do not properly worship jupiter or mars and as a result we are losing battles and the empire is coming apart we have to exterminate the christians so many of these rulers actually have like major beef with Christians. Nero famously after Rome burns, like he is not in fact responsible for it, but everybody else is accusing him of being responsible for it. And so Nero says, well, it was the Christians fault. And he starts persecuting Christians. Um, he starts like feeding them to the lions and lighting them up at night. Um, basically to just emphasize like, this is the problem. This is what's breaking down the empire. See also Vespasian um, and quite a few of the other emperors like between Constantine and, um, and Trajan. Um, they sort of identify that Christians are to blame for everything that's going on. And as a result, there will be these sorts of like spats of Christian persecution when tons of Christians will get executed for, in various ways or persecuted in other ways um, over the course of their history. But the big change, the big sort of like stabilizing agent comes about with Diocletian. Um, Diocletian is the one who splits the empire in two. Um, so like at this point, again, Rome has become too big to administrate. Um, Rome as the center of the empire has kind of become less and less effective as the empire has become more and more focused on its eastern holdings than its western holdings. So if you move down to the next slide, you can see like in 117, this is when Augustus is ruling or like considerably after Augustus's rule actually. Um, this is the height of the imperial power, and you can see that it's spread as far north as England, but not quite as far as Scotland, as far to the west as Spain and northern Africa, um, as far south as like the Egyptian holdings once upon a time, as far east um, as the Arabian Peninsula, um, including old Mesopotamia and Babylon, as well as like Judea and what uh, the Jewish holdings. Um, it's gotten really huge and really unwieldy and Rome can't rule this anymore. There's just too much to rule. Um, so Diocletian splits the empire in two. So if you look at the next slide, you'll see like the blue on the left side and the yellow on the right very much indicates um, the Western versus the Eastern Roman Empire as it's likely to become. Um, but if you go back to our list of emperors, um, Diocletian basically comes up with this new structure where there's going to be like four primary rulers of Rome at all times. Um, one who is in charge in both the East and the West, the Augustus, and one who is like subordinate to them, but usually running the military, the Caesar. Um, so Diocletian creates like a four-part government. Um, and this works as long as Diocletian is alive. As soon as Diocletian dies, these four people who sort of like take over the empire immediately fall to infighting and immediately start beating the crap out of each other and invading each other. West against East, East against West, Caesar against Augustus, Augustus against Caesar. Until finally Constantine is the one who ultimately comes out as successful. Um, Constantine 
is a brilliant Roman politician as well as a brilliant Roman general in his own right. He is given power by his father, Constantius, to rule as Augustus over the Western Roman Empire. Um, and he basically, like, first has to defeat Maximinus, the sort of upstart Caesar who at this point controls Rome. So he defeats him in combat, and then he defeats the Eastern Augustus in combat and unifies the empire once again, um, only to divide it immediately afterward. But one of the things that Constantine does is he establishes a new center of power. Um, he founds Constantinople, um, the city in what we now call Turkey, uh, the city that we now call Istanbul, or, you know, um, you remember the song, yes? Um, basically what he does is he relocates Roman power to the east, um, which makes sense. At this point, Rome itself isn't entirely safe anymore. There are too many pirates, there are too many invading forces, too many barbarians like attacking it from all sides. In fact, the center of power at this point is in Mediolanum, not even in Rome proper. Um, Rome, as the center of the Roman Empire, has very much fallen out of significance because of its vulnerabilities. Um, so Constantine finds Constantinople, and this is going to be the new seat of power for all of the Roman Empire. Um, but it's not going to be long after Constantine's rule. Like, within a hundred years, Rome itself falls. Um, the Visigoths and Ostrogoths come sweeping in from the north, themselves displaced by the Huns invading from the east. Like, Attila the Hun is, you know, pushing everybody out of place. Um, and as a result, they come into Rome, they sack the place, they take over, and for the next, like, 300 years, Rome is going to be inter intermittently ruled by non-Romans. Um, it's going to be a giant mess, in short. So if you look at that map with, again, the blue and the yellow, slide uh, 5, um, you can see that we have the Eastern Roman Empire largely intact at this point. Um, this is what's going to become the Byzantine Empire, and for the next thousand years it's going to be hanging around in various stages of disrepair, um, but it will reach its peak in the next 200 years under Emperor Justinian, um, and it will be very, very Christian for reasons I'll get to in a moment. Um, but in the West, you're going to see basically what was the Roman Empire being parceled out, divvied up among these sort of feuding barbarian groups. Um, first the Ostrogoths and the Visigoths, and then the Franks, who will kind of come in and ultimately convert to Christianity and end up being sort of the protectorates of the papal-run um, government in Rome proper. Um, and that's very much the beginning of the Middle Ages, which very much means it's kind of out of our purview. Um, but the other thing I want to stress is that Constantine is the first emperor to sort of adopt Christianity as a major feature of the Roman Empire. Um, he is not going to make Rome the official religion. His sons will do that. Um, but he himself converts to Christianity on his deathbed, and he makes Christianity acceptable. Um, in short, like, he makes a whole bunch of religious reforms. Um, and at this point, like, the old myths, the Roman myths the Greek myths are very much out of favor. Like, the pagans have lost a lot of credibility over the last 400 years. Um, like, even the the pagans who are in power at this point aren't even, like, Jupiter or Mars worshippers. They're Mithra worshippers. Um, Zoroastrianism has very much sort of infiltrated Rome from their holdings in Persia, and as a result, like, most people in the Roman Empire at this point are either Christians 
in hiding or explicitly, or they are explicit wor worshippers of Mithra, the unconquered sun, which is why Constantine declares like the first day of each week to be sacred and holy and calls it Sunday to like qualify what you're supposed to be worshipping on that day. Um, so Constantine sort of gives legitimization to Christianity and as a result Christianity is going to become a major power in the Roman political world for the next several hundred years to the point that when Rome falls Rome will ultimately not like they'll have political emperors sort of as puppets of the Ostrogothic kings um, or the kings will just assume that they are emperors and then just run the show from there but they will frequently have to get along with the Pope in Rome and in fact the Pope is going to be the most enduring political institution of the Western Roman Empire to the point that like when you know all of the barbarians are completely disorganized the Pope will name their own new emperor uh, specifically Charlemagne in like the ninth century um, and basically the emperor from that point on will be subservient to um, the Pope but again, that's Middle Ages and very much out of our scope. Um, now, again, like, you cannot talk about the development of the Roman Empire and its ultimate fall without talking about Christianity. So if you look at the next slide, this is the timeline of how, like, Christianity develops at the same time as you have Ro the Roman Empire sort of coming into its own. Because um, Christianity is very much sort of coming to its own at the same time as the Roman Empire is really getting started. Um, Jesus was born and lived much of his early life under the M imperial rule of Emperor Augustus, um, the guy who basically said, and now we're going to be an empire. Um, it is going to be under Tiberius that Jesus dies and is crucified. Um, and most of the major, like, New Testament writers, guys like Paul or um, Peter, the, the apostle who is responsible for Mark and who is considered the first pope, um, both of them are going to die under Nero during Nero's persecutions of the Christians after the fire in Rome. Um, now I'm going to focus more on Christianity and how this interacts with the Roman Empire in the next lecture because we're going to talk about like Christianity, not just its scope, but also like its foundings and how it works um, in the next lecture. Um, but I want to keep like keep in mind that all of this Roman history is concurrently working with a sort of development of Christianity um, as its own religion and as its own sort of mythic tradition. And obviously that one's super important because it's the one that's still holding on for dear life in this day to this day. Um, like you will be hard pressed to find anyone worshiping Jupiter openly um, in contemporary American society, but you can walk down basically any major street in any major city and be confronted with tons of Christian churches. Um, these two religions very much grow up side by side in some really interesting ways. Um, but like I said, we'll talk about that next week. For now, I want to turn my turn our attention to the myths themselves, since you know I've been talking for an hour about Roman history, and it is not nearly enough. Um, but our primary focus should remain on the myths and how exactly they inform the, the Roman identity in this particular case. Um, so if we turn back to Livy, like I was reading him a little bit earlier, 
Um, but now is the time to really focus on the, the meat of what Livy describes to us. Um, the things that we need to emphasize, like the two major moments in the founding of Rome, sort of circulate around Aeneas on the one hand and around Romulus and Remus on the other. Um, like these are the people that the Romans will point to as their founders, as their progenitors, as the major, major figures in the development of Rome's kingship all the way to its republic, to its imperial uh, determination. Um, now, Aeneas, we should remember. Like, Aeneas we've run into before. Obviously, he's a major figure during the Trojan War. He is one of Priam's sons. He is not nearly as strong or as powerful, powerful or as ingenious as Hector is, um, but he is still significant. He is one of the major warriors. Like, when we read the Iliad, we will see Aeneas as a major player on the Trojan side. Um, and a lot of gods are going to have a vested interest in protecting or, you know, keeping him safe. Um, which we should remember, Aeneas is himself a demigod. Um, Aeneas is the child who is born to Aphrodite and Anchises. Um, if you remember way back now, like two, three weeks ago, the Homeric hymn to Aphrodite. Um, Aphrodite and Anchises get together. This is the only mortal that Aphrodite has ever slept with. Um, but the product is Aeneas. Aeneas who is beautiful, Aeneas who is beloved by Aphrodite, Aeneas who is held as one of Priam's sons, since Anchises is one of Priam's sons, and therefore Aeneas is Priam's grandson. Uh, but Aeneas gets special treatment. Aphrodite especially protects Aeneas. Um, so when Tro Troy falls, Aeneas is one of the people to survive. Um, and it's debated exactly how that works. So in the Aeneid, which we'll read the Aeneid part two, the particularly relevant part for Aeneas's escape from Troy, um, Virgil paints it as though the Greeks are like sacking the city and Aeneas like cuts his way through the Greek invaders, um, sa saving his family and getting like, getting his legacy preserved to safety. Um, but, like, other traditions have it, as Livy expresses here, that it was sort of peaceful, that the Greeks just kind of let Aeneas go because Aeneas was never that big of a, a, like, problem to the Greeks. They respected him, in short. Um, Aeneas was not their enemy. Aeneas was just fighting for his hometown. Whatever the reasoning, Aeneas goes on an epic voyage of his own right. He sails all the way to Rome, and for our purposes, like, we only need to worry too much about him founding Rome. Um, landing in Italy with all of his Trojan allies, everyone that he managed to save, and basically setting up shop near Latinus, the indigenous ruler of Rome. Uh, but notice, too, that Aeneas and Latinus pretty quickly become friends. They ally. They become one city. Um, and again, Livy says that there are two different traditions here. Virgil tells us in the Aeneid that, like, they fight a battle and Aeneas overcomes Latinus. And Latinus is so impressed with Aeneas's prowess that he's like, hey, let's just become one people. You, why don't you marry my daughter and then we'll be allies and it'll be great. Um, and Aeneas is totally on board with this. In the other tradition, they don't even get to fight. They just, like, meet on the battlefield. Latinus is like, holy crap, you're awesome. Can we all just, like, be friends? And then Aeneas is like, cool, let's do that. And they become friends. Um, but notice the emphasis here. The Romans trace their descent to, on the one hand, Aeneas and the Trojans, the greatest army, the greatest city in the ancient world, like the city that Homer himself is praising in the Iliad, and on the other hand, to the Latins, the indigenous people of Italy. Um, notice that, like, 
they trace their lineage all the way back to Aphrodite through Aeneas, but they also trace their lineage to the indigenous people of Rome. And this is kind of in, indicative of like how the Romans see themselves as being the product of these two fused mythic traditions. And you will see like the three major gods that the early Romans worship are Jupiter, i.e. Zeus, Mars, i.e. Ares, for reasons we'll get to, and also Quirinus, who is like someone we've never heard of and has no chorus, like corresponding uh, significance in the Greek uh, pantheon. Um, the Romans are very distinct. Like they adopt many of the Greek gods. They see themselves as being successors of the Trojan mythic tradition, um, but they also see themselves as being uniquely Italian. Um, like the Latins are themselves also a part of the Roman identity, separate from their Trojan identity. So at any rate, um, they make peace and then they go to war together. Um, Turnus invades both Aeneas and Latin, Latinus um, in their alliance. And in this process, Latinus dies, but Aeneas, in a show of good faith, declares that all the Trojans will now call themselves Latins as well, i.e. the proud Trojans of the greatest city in the ancient world will subordinate themselves and become Latins. Um, they honor Latinus's memory through this process. Notice, too, that when Aeneas dies, he gets deified. Um, this is both in Livy, where the, uh, they mention, like, he lies buried, whether it is fitting and right to term him god or man, on the banks of the river Numicus. Men, however, call him Jupiter Indiges. Um, in Ovid's Metamorphoses, you'll see the same emphasis. When Aeneas would die, instead he is apotheosized, he becomes a god. Um, and notice that he is called Jupiter Indiges, i.e. Jupiter of the land. He is equivalent with Zeus. And in fact, the Romans seem to be suggesting here that uh, Aeneas, as he was when he formed like Rome, when he founded Rome, was really just Zeus in disguise, or Jupiter in disguise. Um, so they draw their lineage to Aphrodite, who gave birth to Aeneas, but also to Aeneas, who is himself Jupiter. Um, so already we have like two of the most major gods in the Greek pantheon or in the Roman pantheon for that matter, um, being seen as major players in the founding of Rome. Um, even though Livy is kind of grumpy about like the supernatural effects again, like whether it is fitting and right to term him God or man, like obviously Livy is throwing some shade on the mythic origins of Aeneas here. Um, but he acknowledges it. He recognizes and records that popularly Aeneas is held up as being Jupiter, as being a god in his own right, um, in his role as founder of Rome. Um, now, the next part, like, regarding Romulus and Remus is a little tricksy, so I want to, like, pin this down and explain it a little better. Um, so we get, after Aeneas, there's this long succession of kings that Livy records for us, um, which ultimately breaks down to Numitor and Amulius. Um, Numitor and Amulius are two brothers. They are the next logical successors. Numitor is the eldest, so he would logically be the rightful king over the fledgling Latin Empire. Um, but Amulius drives out his brother and rules in his stead. So Numitor is the rightful ruler, Amulius is the usurper. But Numitor isn't killed, he's just exiled, driven out of the city, uh, forced to live in the surrounding countryside. Now, Amulius wants to guarantee his succession, 
So in the process of this, he takes the wife of Amulius, Rhea Silvia, or he takes the wife of Numitor, Rhea Silvia, and he makes her a Vestal Virgin. Now Vesta in the Roman tradition is the same as Hestia in the Greek tradition. This is like the one time um, that we're going to see Hestia actually be fairly significantly involved in a myth. Um, but this actually has much more to do with the tradition of the Vestal Virgins. Um, in both Greece and Rome, so far as I know, there are a group of women sort of set apart as virgins, sacred to either Hestia or Vesta. Um, in Rome, it becomes a fairly powerful institution. The Vestal Virgins are sort of an arm of the, of the like, Roman king kinghood and resurrected under the under the uh, emperor. Um, the Vestal Virgins are sacred. They are again hearth maintainers, like they maintain the imperial household, um, and nobody sleeps with them. Nobody is allowed to sleep with them. The only man who they are allowed to interact with is the king or the emperor himself. Um, so when Rhea Silvia is sort of ordered to become a Vestal Virgin, this takes her out of consideration. Um, she can no longer have kids, which is the key for Amulius. Um, if Rhea Silvia were to have kids, they would be logically, con or they could be understood to be Numitor's offspring, therefore the rightful rulers of the Latin Empire, and therefore pose a threat to Numitor. Which is why when Rhea Silvia, despite being a Vestal Virgin, conceives twins, Amulius is beside himself, like he doesn't know what to do in this situation. Um, now, Livy records that uh, Rhea Silvia says that she was ravished by Mars. So once again, we have an important god coming into the Roman identity. Um, Aeneas attaches himself to both Aphrodite and Jupiter. Now we have Romulus and Remus claiming as their father Mars, Ares, the god of war. Um, and again, the Romans see Mars very differently from how the Greeks see Ares. Um, while they are both gods of war and they, are, they hold sort of the same roles in their respective pantheons, Mars is respectable. War is a good thing for the Romans. War protects the Roman Empire. Um, so you can see that by having Romulus and Remus be the offspring of war, they, the Romans sort of acknowledge, recognize, and even emphasize that they are going to be a warlike people. They're going to achieve their security through violence and conquest. Um, at any rate, Obviously, Amulius is really upset about this whole Rhea Silvia giving birth to children thing. So I believe he just, like, kills Rhea Silvia. Like, first he chains her up and then, like, offs her. The children, the two, the two kids, the, the twins, they are exposed. Like, they're chucked in a basket and thrown down the river. Um, but they survive. Surprise, surprise. Um, the legend goes that they were picked up by a she-wolf and suckled by this she-wolf. Um, and there are actually like famous statues and artistic works that depict like Romulus and Remus suckling at the teats of a wolf. Um, but of course, Livy trying to get rid of all the mythic stuff very much poo-poos this idea and suggests that, you know, instead it was like the farmer's wife who was especially mean and might therefore have been called she-wolf. Um, 
at any rate, it's going to be Romulus and Remus who the, the who found the Empire. Um, they're the ones who drive out Amulius, restoring Numitor to his proper kingship. They are the ones who will found the city on Seven Hills. And ultimately, Romulus will kill Remus in some fashion or another. Either Remus is going to die in battle defending the city on the Seven Hills, or like, uh, like Livy records... Um, or rather, this is Plutarch who records it. Um, Plutarch says that, like, Remus apparently jumps over the wall and Romulus, like, immediately kills him on the spot and he's like, I will do this to anyone who comes over the walls of Rome. Whatever your takeaway, the importance here is that Romulus is the one who will ultimately be the one to found and rule Rome. Remus basically gets offed pretty quickly in some kind of conflict. And the Romans don't have a problem with this. Um, that's the other thing to keep in mind. Like, I've stressed throughout this lecture that the Romans are warlike. They're all about conquest. They're, you know, they have their sort of weird identity crisis with the Greeks, but they also are very firmly themselves. Notice what we can take away from the Roman people based on understanding these myths. On the one hand, they see themselves as the offspring of the Trojans. Um, they are the inheritors of the Trojan Empire, um, the inheritors of the Trojan War. And when they read, um, the Iliad and the Odyssey, they're very much going to be more sympathetic to the Trojans than to the Greeks. In Virgil, the Greeks are going to be like vicious, barbaric, evil people sacking the streets of this glorious city of Troy. Um, the Greeks are going to be their enemies in a very real sense. Um, like, even though they will conquer them and spend a lot of their time speaking Greek, the Romans are always going to see themselves as, like, antagonistic to the Greeks in some way. Um, but also notice that they are the survivors of a war they should have won. The Greeks betrayed the Trojans to conquer Troy. Like, where Homer seems to be fairly ambivalent about it, where Apollodorus and the Greeks tend to think that, like, Odysseus's ingenuity is a good thing, the Romans see Ulysses as being a schemer, a villain. Um, he unfairly tricked the Trojans out of their great city. Um, if they had been playing fair, the Trojans totally would have won. That's how the Romans are likely going to see it. They also see Aeneas himself as being a god in his own right, chosen by Jupiter, an embodiment of Jupiter. Um, he is the rightful ruler, the rightful sort of inheritor of the Trojan legacy. Um, and the Romans accept that legacy. They see themselves as the inheritors of that legacy. Um, but also they see themselves as being the product of war. Um, wars to defend their city, wars to defend their homeland, wars to conquer new territory, and wars under Romulus and Remus, possibly even betraying one another. This is part of the DNA of who the Romans are, and as a result, there's not a whole lot of problem that the Romans have when one imperial succession or one imperial line takes over from another through violence. This is who the Romans are. They don't have a problem with it. War is a part of their DNA. War is the father of Romulus and Remus, the founders of Rome. You could make the case that Mars is the patron deity of all Rome, even though they will mostly be spending their time worshiping Jupiter um, during the Republic period and the early Imperial period. Um, but these are the myths that the Romans see as uniquely theirs. This is the identity that the Romans carry. 
where the Greeks were all about sort of their joined conflict into um, into Troy, as well as their joined conflict to defend their homeland from the Persians, the Romans see themselves as being naturally more aggressive, as taking their homeland, um, as being outsiders coming in in many, many cases, and that being their, their birthright in a real sense. Um, the Romans are okay with the fact that they are the children of war, in short. Um, so I realize that that's like a real Cliff's Notes version of like the whole rise and fall of Rome as both republic and kingdom and empire. Um, like we did not scratch the surface of all that probably we should have discussed. Um, but I just wanted to give you that idea. Like who are the Romans from their own perspective, the perspective of their myths and from the perspective of history over, overall? Um, this is who they are. And like this is who we are too. Like, as much as Hellenism is probably an even more important moment in the cultural history of the world, like, the Roman Empire is very much the foundation of all of Western society. Um, like, Islam is going to very much identify itself based on its conflicts with Byzantium um, and by taking over much of the Roman holdings at one point or another. Um, all of Europe, like the Western and Eastern Europeans, are going to be the inheritors of either the Western Roman Empire, the traditions of like Christianity through the papacy and like the old Roman government structures um, of like the emperors and earlier, or the Byzantines, on the other hand, like Russia and uh, the Orthodox Church, um, the Armenians and the Eastern Europeans are very much going to identify with either the Western or Eastern Church as it was founded and sort of as, a, as it followed the split of the Roman Empire under Diocletian and Constantine. Um, like, we are living in the shadow of Rome today. Our government is based on its Republican structure. Um, our laws follow from, you know, the laws set down by Augustus and modified by Justinian. Um, like, so much of Roman of the Roman world still inhabits who we are today and the reasons that we do things. Um, we It's, like, so crucial to understanding where they stand, both in respect of, like, their, their emphasis, their influence on the mythology that we read in this class as well as just our culture overall and the sort of fundamental myths that we take for granted about ourselves um like cannot stress it enough um but for next class we're going to talk about christianity and how it fits into this whole grand giant mess of the ancient mythological traditions in the ancient world um so like i stressed earlier at the beginning of the lecture come prepared to talk about uh, Christianity. Um, I will do my best to do like Judaism and Christianity in an hour and 15 minutes in the next lecture, but you know, it will be woefully short of everything that we need to discuss as far as like how to understand where it fits into this tradition and how it informs our own culture and society today. Um, so let's talk about it. it. Let's get ready to have that conversation. And I hope, like, honestly, I hope on some level that the big picture is becoming at least a little bit more clear. Um, like, it is the eternal struggle of humanities professors and of professors in the humanities in general to give students context. Like, it's so hard to just do the whole picture of the ancient world. Um, and yet that's kind of what we have to do. Um, so I hope that like between our discussion of the Greek city-states and the, the wars like the Peloponnesian War and the Greco-Persian War, our discussion of the Greek nation as it's perpetuated through Hellenism and then the Roman Empire gives you a decent idea of what the world 
kind of looked like at this point in time and what it was developing into. Um, but more about that next class.